Section 16. Part 2 of Chapter 2 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackstone, Book 1. Chapter 2 of the Parliament, Part 2. The constituent parts of a Parliament are the next objects of our inquiry, and these are the King's Majesty sitting there in his royal political capacity, and the three estates of the realm, the Lords Spiritual, the Lords Temporal, who sit together with the King in one house, and the Commons, who sit by themselves in another and the king and these three estates together form the great corporation or body politic of the kingdom, of which the king is said to be caput, principium, et finis. For upon their coming together the king meets them either in person or by representation, without which there can be no beginning of a parliament, and he also has alone the power of dissolving them. It is highly necessary for preserving the balance of the Constitution that the executive power should be a branch, though not the whole, of the legislature. The total union of them, we have seen, would be productive of tyranny. The total disjunction of them for the present would in the end produce the same effects by causing that union against which it seems to provide. The legislature would soon become tyrannical, by making continual encroachments and gradually assuming to itself the rights of the executive power. Thus the long Parliament of Charles I, while it acted in a constitutional manner with the royal concurrence, redressed many heavy grievances and established many salutary laws. But when the two houses assumed the power of legislation in exclusion of the royal authority, they soon after assumed likewise the reins of administration, and, in consequence of these united powers, overturned both church and state, and established a worse oppression than any they pretended to remedy. To hinder, therefore, any such encroachments, the king is himself a part of the parliament, and, as this is the reason of his being so, very properly, therefore, the share of legislation which the Constitution has placed in the Crown consists in the power of rejecting rather than resolving, this being sufficient to answer the end proposed. For we may apply to the royal negative in this instance what Cicero observes of the negative of the Roman tribunes, that the Crown has not any power of doing wrong, but merely of preventing wrong from being done. The Crown cannot begin of itself any alterations in the present established law, but it may approve or disapprove of the alterations suggested and consented to by the two Houses. The Legislative therefore cannot abridge the executive power of any rights which it now has by law without its own consent, since the law must perpetually stand as it now does, unless all the powers will agree to alter it. And herein indeed consists the true excellence of the English government, that all the parts of it form a mutual check upon each other. 
In the legislature the people are a check upon the nobility, and the nobility a check upon the people, by the mutual privilege of rejecting what the other has resolved, while the king is a check upon both, which preserves the executive power from encroachments. And this very executive power is again checked and kept within due bounds by the two houses, through the privilege they have of inquiring into, impeaching, and punishing the conduct, not indeed of the king, which would destroy his constitutional independence, but which is more beneficial to the public, of his evil and pernicious counsellors. Thus every branch of our civil polity supports and is supported, regulates and is regulated by the rest. For the two houses naturally drawing in two directions of opposite interest, and the prerogative in another still different from them both, they mutually keep each other from exceeding their proper limits, while the whole is prevented from separation and artificially connected together by the mixed nature of the crown, which is a part of the legislative and the sole executive magistrate. Like three distinct powers in mechanics, they jointly impel the machine of government in a direction different from what either, acting by themselves, would have done, but at the same time in a direction partaking of each and formed out of all, a direction which constitutes the true line of the liberty and happiness of the community. Let us now consider these constituent parts of the sovereign power or parliament, each in a separate view. The King's Majesty will be the subject of the next and many subsequent chapters to which we must at present refer. The next in order are the spiritual lords. These consist of two archbishops and twenty-four bishops, and at the dissolution of monasteries by Henry the Eighth consisted likewise of twenty-six mitred abbots and two priors, a very considerable body, and in those times equal in number to the temporal nobility. All these hold, or are supposed to hold, certain ancient baronies under the king, for William the Conqueror thought proper to change the spiritual tenure of Frankelmoin or free arms, under which the bishops held their lands during the Saxon government, into the feudal or Norman tenure by barony, which subjected their estates to all civil charges and assessments from which they were before exempt, and, in right of succession to those baronies, the bishops obtained their seat in the House of Lords. But though these lords spiritual are, in the eye of the law, a distinct estate from the lords temporal, and are so distinguished in all our acts of Parliament, yet in practice they are usually blended together under the one name of the Lords. They intermix in their votes, and the majority of such intermixture binds both estates. For if a bill should pass their house, there is no doubt of its being effectual, though every Lord spiritual should vote against it, of which Selden and Sir Edward Cook give many instances, as, on the other hand, I presume it would be equally good if the Lord's temporal present were inferior to the bishops in number, and every one of those temporal lords gave his vote to reject the bill, though this Sir Edward Cook seems to doubt of. The Lord's temporal consist of all the peers of the realm, 
the bishops not being in strictness held to be such but merely lords of parliament, by whatever title of nobility distinguished, dukes, marquises, earls, viscounts, or barons, of which dignities we shall speak more hereafter. Some of these sit by descent, as do all ancient peers, some by creation, as do all new-made ones, others, since the union with Scotland, by election, which is the case of the sixteen peers who represent the body of the Scots nobility. Their number is indefinite, and may be increased at will by the power of the crown, and once, in the reign of Queen Anne, there was an instance of creating no less than twelve together, in contemplation of which, in the reign of King George I, a bill passed the House of Lords, and was countenanced by the then ministry for limiting the number of the peerage. This was thought by some to promise a great acquisition to the Constitution, by restraining the prerogative from gaining the ascendant in that august assembly, by pouring in at pleasure an unlimited number of new created lords. But the bill was ill-relished and miscarried in the House of Commons, whose leading members were then desirous to keep the avenues to the other house as open and easy as possible. The distinction of rank and honours is necessary in every well-governed state, in order to reward such as are eminent for their services to the public, in a manner the most desirable to individuals, and yet without burthen to the community, exciting thereby an ambitious yet laudable ardour, and generous emulation in others. And emulation, or virtuous ambition, is a spring of action which, however dangerous or invidious in a mere republic, or under a despotic sway, will certainly be attended with good effects under a free monarchy, where, without destroying its existence, its excesses may be continually restrained by that superior power from which all honour is derived. Such a spirit, when nationally diffused, gives life and vigour to the community. It sets all the wheels of government in motion, which, under a wise regulator, may be directed to any beneficial purpose, and thereby every individual may be made subservient to the public good, while he principally means to promote his own particular views. A body of nobility is also more peculiarly necessary in our mixed and compounded constitution, in order to support the rights of both the crown and the people, by forming a barrier to withstand the encroachments of both. It creates and preserves that gradual scale of dignity which proceeds from the peasant to the prince, rising like a pyramid from a broad foundation, and diminishing to a point as it rises. It is this ascending and contracting proportion that adds stability to any government, for when the departure is sudden from one extreme to another, we may pronounce that state to be precarious. The nobility, therefore, are the pillars which are reared from among the people more immediately to support the throne, and if that falls, they must also be buried under its ruins. Accordingly, when in the last century the commons had determined to extirpate monarchy, they also voted the House of Lords to be useless and dangerous. 
and since titles of nobility are thus expedient in the state, it is also expedient that their owners should form an independent and separate branch of the legislature. If they were confounded with the mass of the people, and like them had only a vote in electing representatives, their privileges would soon be borne down and overwhelmed by the popular torrent, which would effectually level all distinctions. It is therefore highly necessary that the body of nobles should have a distinct assembly, distinct deliberations, and distinct powers from the commons. The commons consist of all such men of any property in the kingdom as have not seats in the House of Lords, every one of which has a voice in Parliament, either personally or by his representatives. In a free state, every man who is supposed a free agent ought to be in some measure his own governor, and therefore a branch at least of the legislative power should reside in the whole body of the people. And this power, when the territories of the state are small and its citizens easily known, should be exercised by the people in their aggregate or collective capacity, as was wisely ordained in the petty republics of Greece, and the first rudiments of the Roman state. But this will be highly inconvenient when the public territory is extended to any considerable degree, and the number of citizens is increased. Thus, when, after the social war, all the burghers of Italy were admitted free citizens of Rome, and each had a vote in the public assemblies, it became impossible to distinguish the spurious from the real voter, and from that time all elections and popular deliberations grew tumultuous and disorderly, which paved the way for Marius and Scylla, Pompey and Caesar, to trample on the liberties of their country, and at last to dissolve the commonwealth. In so large a state as ours, it is therefore very wisely contrived that the people should do that by their representatives which it is impracticable to perform in person. Representatives chosen by a number of minute and separate districts wherein all the voters are, or easily may be, distinguished. The counties are therefore represented by knights elected by the proprietors of lands. The cities and boroughs are represented by citizens and burgesses, chosen by the mercantile part or supposed trading interest of the nation, much in the same manner as the burghers in the Diet of Sweden are chosen by the corporate towns, Stockholm sending four, as London does with us, other cities two, and some only one. The number of English representatives is 513, and of Scots 45, in all 558. And every member, though chosen by one particular district, when elected and returned serves for the whole realm. For the end of his coming thither is not particular, but general, not barely to advantage his constituents, but the common wealth. To advise his majesty, as appears from the writ of summons, De communi concilio supernegotiis quibus dam arduis et urgentibus, regem, statum, et defensionem regnae anglii et ecclesiae anglicani concernentibus. 
and therefore he is not bound, like a deputy in the United Provinces, to consult with or take the advice of his constituents upon any particular point, unless he himself thinks it proper or prudent so to do. These are the constituent parts of a parliament, the king, the lords spiritual and temporal, and the commons, parts of which each is so necessary that the consent of all three is required to make any new law that shall bind the subject. Whatever is enacted for law by one or by two only of the three is no statute, and to it no regard is due, unless in matters relating to their own privileges. For though in the times of madness and anarchy the commons once passed a vote, that whatever is enacted or declared for law by the commons in Parliament assembled hath the force of law, and all the people of this nation are concluded thereby, although the consent and concurrence of the King or House of Peers be not had thereto, yet when the Constitution was restored in all its forms, it was particularly enacted by Statute 13 Charles II, Chapter 1, that if any person shall maliciously or advisedly affirm that both or either of the Houses of Parliament have any legislative authority without the King, such person shall incur all the penalties of a premuniary. End of section 16. Recording by Graham Redmond.